Well, good morning. Welcome. Um, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, uh, what we're doing during the summer months uh, is we are on Sunday mornings. We're going through some some selected psalms. We're looking at psalms that fall within the first book of the psalms. Uh, there are five books of the psalms, and this morning we're going to do something a little different and unique. Um, we're going to look at two psalms together. We actually looked at Psalm 8 last week, so hopefully I'm going to say some new things about Psalm 8 this morning. But we're going to look at Psalm 8 and Psalm 14 together. Uh, years ago, I heard a pastor do something similar to this, and I thought one day I want to try that. And so that's what I'm doing. Uh, let me tell you this. It was challenging. You can ask Woody Marker about this. Um, I almost bailed on this sermon like 10 times this week. Um, so uh, anyway, there's just more that more to be said that we could possibly say this morning. But in the end, let me tell you, this is why I think it's important for us to just try to take a stab at it, um, even if it's a little unusual form for us this morning. And here it is. Both of these psalms, as we read them, I, I want you to hear them. They're both describing and talking to us about the nature of man. Um, both are psalms written by David, same author. Both, we're told, are written for the choir master. That is, that they are hymns to be sung in corporate worship. But when you read them together, side by side, they seem so, so very different. Um, one has this incredibly lofty view of mankind or humanity. And the other is an incredibly dark view of humanity. Um, for millennia, um, reaching all the way back to philosophers like Socrates, philosophers have talked about the need to know yourself. Um, hence the title this morning, Know Thyself. Um, and they've said you need to know yourself in order that you can navigate life in a meaning, meaningful way. And the Bible says... At the key to knowing yourself and the key to living inside of reality is holding together these seemingly opposing views of human nature and of humanity. That you and I are both glorious and very deeply flawed. Um, so let me read uh, these two psalms for us. I'll try to read through them pretty quickly. And then I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll talk them through. Let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Beginning with Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens. And the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. 
They do abominable deeds. There is no one, or there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Almighty and gracious God, we do plead with you now for your help. Um, because we don't need to hear this morning the voice of a man. We need to hear the voice of our maker. Of the one who crowned us with glory and honor. And the one who knows the dark and secret things that lie within our hearts. Father, would you reveal yourself to us today. And remind us, even as we sit beneath your word, of the wonderful truth that can be ours because of the gospel, that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of Jesus, we are far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. So Father, we pray this morning, show us Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. You probably won't know this name unless you happen to be a, a serious rock climber. Um, but uh, Royal Robbins was a famous rock climber several decades ago. Um, and I want to read you a quote from an article that he wrote years and years ago uh, for the magazine Sports Illustrated. And this is what he wrote. If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we're doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves and our capabilities and weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then and only then will we climb safely. For climbing, he says, is an exercise in reality. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground regardless of his experience or skill. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be may have his illusion rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. Climbing is an exercise in reality. He's saying it's not so much physical strength or technique that keeps rock climbers safe, but it's intentionally living inside of reality. It's rigorous honesty. It's a commitment to seeing things the way they really are. That's what keeps you safe. And I'm asking you this morning this question. Do you know yourself as you really are? Um, Are you living inside of reality? 16th century theologian John Calvin. Big name, right? And he began his most massive theological work that's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He began it with this sentence of all sentences. Without knowledge of self, 
There is no knowledge of God. Knowing yourself is hugely important. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to let Psalm 8 and Psalm 14 together define reality for us and tell us who we really are. Um, So here's what I want us to see. First, I want us to see that we were made for flourishing. You were made by God to flourish. You were made in His image. You were made to be free. And you were made for a life that would flourish underneath your touch. And then second, I want us to see that we are also naturally enslaved in darkness. We are broken. And we are deeply flawed down to our very core. And then finally, I want us to see the way to restoration. That God Himself has acted in history and in space and time in order that He would restore in us His image. So those are our three points. I'll give them to you again real quick. Made for flourishing, enslaved in darkness, and the way to restoration. So first, made for flourishing. See, verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 8, they're a poetic recapitulation of Genesis 1, verse 26. Beautiful poetry spills out of David as he reflects on Genesis 1, verse 26. And this is what Genesis 1, 26 says, or at least the beginning part of it. It says, let us make, this is God speaking, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So David writes in Psalm 8, verse 5, that God made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David's saying, your life has an objective value. Your life has an objective worth. No matter who you are. No matter where you've been. No matter how you're living your life right now. Your life as an objective value and worth because you were made in God's image. Like a mirror that reflects back in the image. You were made to reflect God's own glory back to Him. You were made to flourish under the sunshine of His face. There's so much more I wish I could say about that, but notice what David wrote in verses 6-8 through eight of Psalm 8. He wrote poetically about how God gave humanity or mankind dominion over His creation. How all things were put under His feet. Right? Sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish in the sea and, and so on. Right? David was still reflecting on Genesis 1.26 here. Because this is what Genesis 1.26 says. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then it goes on to say this. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth. God is saying, life, all of creation, was meant to flourish underneath your touch, underneath your hand, underneath your feet. Listen, God made you for flourishing. He made you So that you would cause His creation to flourish in order and harmony and beauty. You know, I can't 
I can't tell you how many times throughout the week I use the word should, whether out loud or internally, right? Here's what I mean. It feels like parenting should be so much easier than this. Um, Like putting together a sermon should be easier than this. Um, Like keeping my own commitments should be easier. Like I should be better than this by now. Right? Stay with me just for a second longer here. Where does that feeling of should come from in your life? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a preacher in London in the early to mid-1900s, he once argued something fascinating in a sermon that I read of his on Genesis. He argued that all of humanity goes through life with a memory trace. Um, A deep memory, he said, that we all have, that we've lost something essential to our humanity. Listen to what he says. He says, we're all conscious of a sense, a memory, a recollection of having lost something. And we are ever trying to recapture something that we know we once possessed. He says, we have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher and greater. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. And listen to this. And though we have lost this, he says, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. What's he talking about? This is why we feel the shoulds of life. Right? We know it deep in our bones. Life was meant to flourish. Underneath our touch. Right? We were made in the image of God. And we were made for flourishing. We could make lots of application here. But think with me for a moment about how we were made for flourishing in what we see as our life's work. So we were made for freedom. Right? To have dominion. You are not meant in this life to be ruled by creation. You are meant to rule over it. You are meant to harness creation's wonder. You are meant to cultivate its potential. You are meant to bring order and beauty into God's world. You know, the farmer who sows seeds and produces a crop, what is he doing? He's bringing order to and filling God's world with beauty. The musician who works with the physics of sound, right, and orders that sound in the melodies that we can sing even this morning, right, he's bringing order and beauty into God's world. The lawyer who works for justice and to uphold laws that keep us safe. The teacher who puts in so many, many hours of preparation, uh, preparing lessons, all so that she can bring out the potential that she sees in her students. The medical professional who takes a broken and disordered body and brings healing and order in order to make it whole again. The landscaper, which I need one right now if you know one, the landscaper who works with God's creation right, to bring out its beauty right, and, and to bring out its function of design. The web designer who harnesses technology in order to create new paths of commerce. The manager or salesperson who comes into a department Right, that isn't working, but he comes in to make it efficient again and to increase sales. The parent who nurtures the gifts of her child, 
right, and guides and directs them so that she can bring out their potential, the stay-at-home mom who keeps the house clean and ordered. When I was a biology major, I had to take microbiology in order to graduate. And you can trust me in this. If no one cleans the house, people will die. I, I, I've seen it in the Petri dishes. I still can't eat leftovers. It's a problem. Listen, I'm, we covered a lot of things right there. And I, I may not have covered your specific work. I try, I try to cover a number of things. But the things we do in this life need to be reimagined in the light of this reality. That you were made for flourishing. So, listen, real quick, let me give you three implications of this reality and then we'll move on to the next point. First is this. You were meant for flourishing. Our culture is constantly shouting at us that we need healthy self-esteem. But then it gives us no objective rationale for that self-esteem. This does. You, no matter who you are, no matter what others think of you, I don't even care what you think about you. You were designed with dignity. You have worth and value. You are meant for flourishing. And nothing and no one can take that away from you. Second, your relationships were meant for flourishing. Look, if humanity is made in God's image, then as C.S. Lewis famously put it, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal in this life. And you were meant to move into relationships with the poor, with the broken, with the addict, with the lonely, those of different races, in order to cause them to flourish. This reality, what I'm saying is, this reality not only builds proper healthy self-esteem, but it also kills every bit of pride and arrogance in you. And then third, which I've already talked about, we need to reimagine our callings and work. The things God has given us dominion over. You need to consider how the work of your hands can bring order and beauty into God's world because you were made for flourishing. All right, second, we're naturally enslaved in darkness. Um, an abrupt fingers on the chalkboard, uh, about face kind of change here. David wrote in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I've listened to several sermons um, about Psalm 14, and um, I may disagree with some people here, but I don't think David is talking about atheism here. Because if that was his intent, I think he would have written the fool says in his mind, there is no God. What I think David is talking about, you might label it functional atheism, but he is talking about something deeper. He is talking about something more fundamental because I think what he's really saying is, we actually do not want a God to rule over us. What humanity most deeply wants is to get rid of God. Right? We want to be left alone by Him. And when you understand that, that that's what He's saying, I think the rest of the psalm kind of unfolds for you. I mean, what does David mean when he says no one seeks after God in verse 2? 
What does he mean that we've all turned aside in verse 3? What does he mean no one does good, not even one in verse 3? See, you might be tempted to say, I've got plenty of friends who aren't believers, but they pray. Surely that's seeking after God. But, I mean, David is threading the needle here, if you will. He isn't saying there's no one who seeks things from God. Right? Blessings and health and peace and on and on. There are, there's lots of seeking things from God. But David is saying, no one seeks God just for God. Or you may say, I know people who aren't believers who do lots of good things. But listen, there are lots of reasons to do good things that aren't good at all. I mean, a lot of doing good that springs from fear and not love. A lot of doing good that springs from a desire for power or pride or self-protection. On and on the list could go. What do we call that? We call that corruption. And that word corruption shows up twice in this psalm, in verse 1 and verse 3. See, David is saying in Psalm 14 that humanity, yeah, it was made for flourishing, but something terrible happened that enslaved all of us in darkness. Think with me, we're going to go back to Genesis and our thoughts here just for a moment. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. That, that's the famous chapter of the Bible that says all of humanity fell into sin and darkness when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. I'm not going to go into it all here. There's another time for this. But I struggled with that story for such a long time. Because Why did God say, don't eat the fruit of that one tree? I mean, why didn't he give an explanation about why? Why that one fruit would lead to death? You know, was it poisonous? Was it toxic? Was it full of carbs? Um, that's, that's something personal for me that I'm working on. Here, but here's the deal. There was no explanation given because God was saying, I want you to obey me about this fruit just because you love me and just because I said so. Obey me because I'm God and you aren't. I want you to trust my words, God is saying. And I want you to know that I love you. That's it. I mean, if, if God had attached any other reason to it, obedience would have been an act of self-interest to preserve my life so that my life might go well. Right? Here's another way to think about it. Why didn't God give Adam and Eve a command that made a little more logical sense? Like, there's two of you. Don't murder each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie to each other. I mean, that would have made sense, right? But if he did, we would have thought, oh, I get it now. The essence of sin is doing bad things. But that's not the essence of sin. Right? The essence of sin... It's taking any good thing and trying to be your own God with it. Because really and truly, we just wish God would leave us alone. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Do you know what the number one song that's requested at funerals in America is? It's My Way by Frank Sinatra, right? With that familiar 
defiant refrain, I did it my way. That's crazy. Just as much as we need to live in the reality that God made us to flourish, we need to admit the reality that left to ourselves, none of us wants God. None of us seeks Him. No one does good. Not even one. All of humanity fell with Adam. We're born, you were born into this world running from God. Turned aside from Him. Deep in our hearts lies this terrible suspicion that we have that God isn't good. That He can't be trusted. And we would be better off without Him. Better off grasping at anything and everything to be our own gods. I'm asking the question, how has that worked out for you and for us? So I grew up, some of you know this, I grew up with a dad in the military. And so I grew up in a chain of command kind of world, right? You need to know who your superior is and you need to know who's under your command. So when my dad was a captain... That meant that some people were under his command, but it also meant that he had many superiors. Things changed when he became a colonel and was the wing commander over entire Air Force bases, right? Now there were a lot of people under his command and very few superiors. You know, success in the military, it depends. It depends upon an awareness of and submission to that reality of chain of command. You see, whether you're unaware of it, or whether you choose to fight against it, or you choose to ignore it, you do so to your own detriment in the military. So I became a pastor. Um, listen, you, you were made to be free. You were made to flourish. You were made to rule over creation. All of that's true. Because the Bible is saying you are only meant... To be ruled by one person. God and nothing else. Nothing else. But when we step outside of that chain of command, it is always to our detriment. And we end up being ruled and enslaved by creation. And you felt it, and I felt it. Three quick examples, and then we're on to our last point. Money, relationships, and children. If you make money the center of your life, A good thing. But if you make it the center of your life, you are going to be ruled by it. And you will be enslaved by it. To gain it, you'll compromise things in your life you never thought you would compromise. And to lose it won't just make you sad. It will will be the crushing loss of your identity if you've centered your life on it. If you make relationships the center of your life, good things. Right? Right? Relationships are good. But if you make them the center of your life, you're always going to be making bad relational decisions. You're either going to be too needy in your relationships or you're going to be too controlling in your relationships. Right? You'll be enslaved and ruled. You'll demand too much from someone that he or she make me happy in life. Or you won't know how to stand up for yourself in relationships. If you make your children the center of your life, you are going to rise and fall with their successes and failures. You will be enslaved. Children are good. 
But if you make them the center of your life, and your identity is wrapped up in who they are and what they do, you're going to rise and fall with every success and failure of theirs. Psalm 14 is saying, you are made to be under God and nothing else. And if He's not your center, you'll be enslaved to anything and everything else and life will crush you and it has. By nature, we're enslaved to darkness. Do you know yourself? Can you embrace that reality that you are made to flourish but enslaved to darkness? Okay, so now what? Third and last, the way to restoration. Last week when we were looking at Psalm 8, I, I reminded you that Jesus quoted a portion of this psalm on his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But there's another place in the New Testament where Psalm 8 is quoted and quoted at length. And that is in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, the, author wrote, the author of Hebrews wrote this. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come which we are speaking, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then the author says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying this life is full of shoulds. We don't see it all in subjection to us. We don't see it all under our feet. This word should, this world should be a place of beauty and order and harmony and flourishing if we were what we were meant to be. But we're not. We're enslaved to darkness and under our feet we feel the brokenness. The strife, the disorder, the conflict and on and on. He's testifying to the reality of our experience. But thankfully, the author of Hebrews didn't stop there. This is what he says. The very next thing he says, in fact. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone. I mean, ultimately, Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews is saying, is about Jesus, the one who came, and he lived the life we should have lived. Let me encourage you to, to read through the Gospels and just pay attention to all the things Jesus touches and how under his hand. And under his touch and under his feet, life flourished. And he came and he lived the life we were meant to live. Everything he did was out of love for his father. Perfect love. And he touched the lepers and he made them well. And he touched the blind and they, they regained their sight. And he touched the deaf and they were made to hear. And he touched the dead and they came to life. Life flourished under his touch. I mean, who did he hang out with? He's constantly moving toward and touching the broken and the outsiders and the outcasts and those who are cast off and forgotten. What's he doing? He's restoring their dignity. Life flourishes underneath his hand. 
He came and lived the life we should have lived. He was the man of Psalm 8. And then what? He died the death we should have died. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He tasted death for everyone on the cross. Everything that's true of us and our slavery to darkness, it was heaped upon him. He paid the debt we owed for all the ways we looked to things other than God for our identity, for ourselves. Where we, where we should have been crushed, he was crushed for us. Listen, years ago, I was thinking about this last night. Years ago, one of my best friend's dad, he bought a 1931 Ford. Um, he spent maybe $200 on getting this. It probably cost him more to get that Ford to his house uh, than, um, than he paid for it. And I, I remember that car. And if you squinted your eyes really good and um, kind of made your vision blurry, it kind of looked like a car. Um, I, I mean, it was so completely rusted out in just a piece of junk. Of course, it wouldn't run or anything like that. And not, I'm not a car guy. I don't know anything about cars. But this guy was. And he loved that 1931 rusted out piece of junk. And so he got to work restoring that car. And he worked on it for 10-something years, 10-plus years. And he made a few changes and custom molds for the fenders, new engine and tires. And I was, he's passed away now, but I remember asking his sons, how much did he spend on that thing? And they said, somewhere around $250,000. Poured money, time, and energy into this thing. Didn't run when he first bought it, but it would go from zero to 60 in four seconds. He would drive around town and he would tape a um, $100 bill on the, uh, the dashboard and he'd put kids in it. He said, you can get that before I reach 60 it's yours. No one ever got it. It was amazing. <laughs> Listen, 15 years ago, when I was living in Martin, Tennessee, he had the car um, in a shop that was real close to Martin, Tennessee, because he was getting some work done on the fenders. And I am not a car guy. I don't, I don't care about, about that stuff. But more than once, I would stop by that shop and just ask the owner if I could come in and look at it. It was It was beautiful. It was incredible. I just wanted to see it, right? Cars aren't my thing, and I can think of a whole lot of other things to spend $250,000 on before a car. But he did it because he loved that car. Let me just ask it this way. What lengths would your maker go to restore his image in you? To make you what you were meant to be? The author of Hebrews is saying, God would go to these lengths. He would send His only begotten Son, the only one who ever really lived the life that should be lived, and He would hand Him over to death for you. His Son would taste death for us in order to restore us. If the essence of sin is taking good things like money and relationships and career and children and trying to build your identity on that and be your own God, the way to restoration is to look on Jesus for your identity. It is to turn and see Him tasting death for you in your place. There's nothing more beautiful than that. It's to turn and see Him losing His glory for you. There's nothing more glorious than that. 
to turn to him and see such beauty in him that nothing else in this life is worth having unless you have him. And the more you turn to him and face him, it will change you and it will restore in you the image of God because you were made to reflect his image like a mirror. And mirrors only work when they are facing the light and you were made to flourish under the sunshine of his face. Let's pray together.